Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 76. Psalm 76. A part of what it takes to interpret the Bible accurately, even if you aren't a trained theologian or so-called Bible scholar, yet you are one who loves God and who desires to read and study His Holy Word, you and I are, if we're going to be those interpreters, simply to read our English translation of the Bible, especially with a careful eye to noticing word repetition. That's one of the ways that we can be so much better at understanding our Bibles, to read with comprehension and particularly to look out for word repetition. It's very important. Let me give you an example from tonight's study of Psalm 76. Let's read this psalm together. You follow along as I read, noticing as we do any words which are given in the text of Scripture several times. Psalm 76. It says in the superscription to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment, to save all the humble of the earth. Selah. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the king's of the earth. Now, did you happen to catch, as we read together, repeated words, words that might form a theme in this psalm, a words which might open to us the very essence of this psalm, its overall meaning? It seems to me that there is strong repetition in this psalm, and it comes by way of a particular word which is mentioned four separate times. What is that word? Fear. That's right. Fear. The word is fear. Mentioned four times. 
In verse 7, you see it listed. Verse 7, but you are to be feared. And then again in verse 8, from the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still. And then, of course, again, verse 11, make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. And then again in verse 12, who cuts off the spirit of princes who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Now, once you have noticed in your Bible reading uh, this repeated word, then of course you need to determine in what context this repeated word is being used. That's very, very important. And sure enough, the context of this psalm of Asaph is the devastation which Israel has seen by other warring countries who have wreaked havoc upon their nation and their land. Haven't we been seeing that as we've studied these psalms uh, over the past three or four times? It's been shown to us, starting here in book three of the psalms, and that starts, of course, with Psalm 73. So Psalm 73, Psalm 74, Psalm 75, and now, fourthly, the fourth psalm, Psalm 76, we have a recurring theme or a question regarding what we've been calling in these series of messages, the first three and now tonight, theodicy. Theodicy. I mentioned it even last Sunday morning as well. It's just a theologian's word that means God's justification, God's vindication. It it comes out of a series of questions that people have about when they don't see God coming to the aid of His people. Uh, They are tending to think or tempted to think that God is not fair, that God is not just, that God is not righteous. Why doesn't He do something? Why doesn't He act? Why doesn't He come down from heaven and deal with all of the evil of the world? And the word theodicy, of course, means that God does have a justification. He has a vindication. He is fair. He is right. He's righteous. He's just. And He will show it. But He shows it on His timetable, not ours. It's His theodicy. It's His answer to all the injustice and unrighteousness and unholiness of the world. And He will show it. He will show it when He desires. And of course, sometimes He does by providential means. He uses uh, armies of the world to snuff out uh, other marauding countries and their armies. Of course He does. He uses providential means through uh, men and women of this world. But there's going to come a day when he will actually come from his celestial bench as the judge and he will move in himself and he will vanquish all the wrongs of the world. Now, each of these psalms, as I've said, 73, 4, 5, and 6, in some way or another pose that theodicy question or else predominantly gives us the answer as to why God has seemingly abandoned His people when so much evil has come their way. I say seemingly because the answer to God's apparent unfairness, His apparent or perceived injustice, is strongly answered. 
And we saw that last time, didn't we? Look back at Psalm 75, just one psalm earlier. We see that clearly in verses 2 through 8. This is what God will do, and this is when He'll do it. You remember this? Psalm 75, 2, at the set time. That means God's time frame, not ours. At the set time, at the right time, at His predisposed time, the, the time that He appoints, the Bible says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. That means fairness. I'll do it when I choose to do it. Not arbitrarily, not capriciously. He has a plan. He has a very definite plan when he will judge the world. And he will judge, it says here in Psalm 75 too, with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. There are those who think God isn't coming. Perhaps they think he is unfair, but they don't care. They're going to do what they do. They're, they're boasters. They're, they're wicked. They speak with a haughty neck, the Bible says. Verse 6 of Psalm 75, For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. That is, the lifting up of the proud. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another crushes the proud, as it were, and he lifts up the humble. That's what verse 7 means. Verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord, that's Yahweh God, in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. It's a cup of divine judgment, and it foams with wine. It's well mixed. That means it's, it's fermenting. And at the right time, the time that he appoints, he pours out from it. And what does he pour out from it? His wrath. His wrath. And all The wicked of the earth shall drain it. That means he will pour his wrath on them utterly down to the dregs, down to the very last drop. I don't think they're going to be saying at that point, is there injustice with God anymore? Because he acts. He deals with it. So this is the time, whenever that time is that God will vindicate Himself. That's what the Odyssey is, God's vindication. He will vindicate Himself, and He'll deal with the wicked, and He will vindicate His people. He'll right all their wrongs. They'll never again say, this was seemingly or perceivably wrong, that you aren't coming to our aid. How long, O Lord? He answers. He will answer. I know, I know. Sometimes God's justice will seem like it's never going to happen. But when it happens, my friends, it will happen swiftly and with utter justice. And that justice will be complete. Not one thing that's ever happened in our world that's wrong and evil and wicked will lose its recompense. God will deal with all things. All things. I know at other times it appears to the 
world at least, and sometimes even to us if we're tempted to go there, like Asaph does in Psalm 73 by himself. And then when he collectively brings Israel's uh, discouragement to God in Psalm 74, yes, it at times appears that God is distant and, and remote, but His people must wait. We must wait until the recompense of the ungodly, until that time And it will occur at some future point of justice. And it makes it seem as though at times now, at the moment, that God has turned a deaf ear to His children. But He has not. He has not. Make no mistake about it. Just as Psalm 75, just what we read, verses 2 to 8, just as it declares, Yahweh is not slow about His promises to judge the wicked and to vindicate the righteous. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Here's an application. Don't, in your own heart, assume that God will not answer. He will. He will answer. Can you trust Him? Maybe you have things in your own heart, things in your life, things with your friends or relatives or fellow church members or whoever it might be, someone who might be going through a very terrible time, maybe physically and certainly spiritually, and you might ask, you might be tempted, how long, O Lord? Why don't you do something? Why don't you come to their aid? Why don't you come to my aid? Lord, why are you delaying? Now, that's natural in some sense. But it's not good to indict God as though He's doing nothing, as though He doesn't care, as though He doesn't want to respond, as though He doesn't love you and me, as though He's punishing us. Well, He's not punishing us us if we're in Christ, but He might be teaching us. He might be teaching us great lessons. This is... This is how God works. This is how God operates. And I know there are many, many people in our world who don't know Christ. They don't love Jesus. They don't perceive God as one who will vindicate Himself and who will come to the aid of the world with all of its evils. And they are are scoffers and they are slanderers of our God. And they... They say things like, where is the promise of His coming? Look in your Bibles at 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Go all the way to the New Testament from Psalm 76 and look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Here are the naysayers. Here are the doubters, the scoffers, the slanderers. And here's what they say. Here's what the Bible records. 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 1. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with what? Scoffing. 
That's what scoffers do. They come with scoffing. That's why they're scoffers. And they come, and, and what, what do they do? They, they are following, the Bible says, their own sinful desires. That's what they do. And here's what they say, verse 4. They, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? Do you, do, you, do you hear it in their hearts? Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep... All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, they're saying something like this. It's been a long time. Thousands and thousands of years. And everything continues on as it's always been. He's not coming. Where is He? Reminds me of Jesus on the cross and those Religious leaders, centurions even, the Romans, come down from the cross. If you're God, you can do this, then come down. Why would you want to suffer like this? Taunting. This is what the scoffer's doing. He's taunting. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation And then Peter says, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Yeah, that's a a fact they don't bring up. Yeah, that's that's going to wreak havoc with your, your theory right? Where is the promise of His coming? Oh, you, you missed a fact. Do you remember the cataclysmic universal flood that judged all people minus eight? So you've, you've conveniently left that out. You've overlooked such a fact. He says in verse 7, but by the same word, by the same word of God which created the world, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Remember Psalm 75 two. At that time that I appoint, and notice this, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. There is a day. It's been appointed. And even though it seems like it's been thousands of years, and it has, don't think it's not going to happen. It will. It's the day that God has appointed for the judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then he says in verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. In other words, time is irrelevant. For him a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, The reason for his delay, at least one reason that Peter gives here, is that God is gracious. He's kind. 
There are people who need to repent, and He's graciously, patiently waiting for their repentance. And all the births and deaths of the world, God has been patiently waiting for all to come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come, and it will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, the earth was once destroyed by a flood, a flood of waters. And the second time, the earth will be destroyed by fire, water and fire. No wonder Peter says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And then what's the next word? Waiting. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, third time He's mentioned promise, but according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, that's God's theodicy. He's got a plan. And His plan will be new heavens, new earth, in which there's no sin, because all that sin will be destroyed and dissolved like this current earth and heavens and a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Don't question the vindication of God, His self-justification, because He will act. He will act. Most certainly He will. And you may be asking at this point, what does all this have to do with what you said earlier about the repeated word fear in Psalm 76? I mean, you started there, and then it appears as though you went off on a tangent. Well, it was planned. It was planned. Look back at Psalm 76. I tell you, the idea of theodicy, God's justice, God's fairness, and the eventual vindication of His name and the vindication of His people is once again front and center here in Psalm 76. It is, it is center stage, and it comes to us through this word fear. Fear. Look back again at those four places. Verse 7, fear. Verse 8, fear. Verse 11, fear. Verse 12, fear. Four times the word fear is used within the context of this great psalm, and it's the key to God's timetable for vindication action. And it is this, and this is the phrase that you and I hear throughout our Bibles, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. How many of you heard that phrase before, the fear of the Lord? We hear it often, don't we? Fear of the Lord, the fear of God, God's fear, fear God. Do you see how Asaph is challenging the people of Israel as they come together to worship and to sing this song? He's challenging the people of Israel as they sing this song in their corporate worship to both understand and live in light of the fear of God. The fear of God. Everything about Psalm 76 is cast 
upon the center stage of the fear of the living God. The fear of the living God. In the case of Psalm 76, one aspect of the fear of the Lord, and there are many aspects to it, but the way Asaph is leading the children of Israel to sing, one aspect comes to the forefront of this fear of the Lord, and it is the coming judgment of God. I mean, the fear of the Lord is a lot of things. It, it, it's like a diamond, and you look at every single facet of the, of the refraction of the light to and out from the diamond, and you can see all kinds of, of colorful lights and an array of, of ideas and characteristics about the fear of the Lord. And one of those, as you turn the diamond of the fear of the Lord and the light refracts from it, one of those aspects is the fear of the Lord in judgment. And we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it because it's in our Bibles. You know, one thing that a preacher must do is talk about every subject because if you just go right through the Bible, we're going right through the Psalms, at some time in the Psalms you're going to hear about joy. So you talk about joy. And at some points you talk about prayer because they're praying and sometimes singing and then you sing. Then you go on with all these topics and then you come to these that people just frankly don't always want to talk about, like judgment, like death, like what happens when a person dies, or what happens when a warring nation comes against another nation like Israel, and you have to talk about it. It's in the Bible. And here it is, Psalm 76. It's right here. It's God's divine judgment, the judgment of God and the fear of the Lord, just like Second Peter 3 talks about it. And so Psalm 76 is talking about judgment. So we have to talk about it. And it talks about the fear of the Lord. And that's what I really want to talk about, the fear of the Lord. But in this case, those two things come together. It's the fear of the Lord in His justice work, His judgment of the wicked, and the cries of His people. Now, you might even be saying, Lance, wait, wait a minute back up, what is even the word fear in the phrase the fear of the Lord? What does that mean? What is the word fear? Because when you think about the word fear, you think of something of which I'm afraid. That's the way we think about fear, right, mostly? Something that scares me, something of which I'm afraid. Spiders, Um, person with a gun, a knife. Um, fist fights where I want to run in the other direction. Um, burglar comes through your house. You hear the rattling downstairs, and you are frightened. Okay, that's what we think about. Sometimes we think about fear. But that's not what this is talking about, and that's not what the Bible uses when it talks about fear, the fear of the Lord at least. And so what is that fear? Well, let me help you with that. The idea of fear in my mind, and in and that which the Scripture teaches, is that the fear of the Lord means a holy reverence for God, a holy reverence for God, that He's majestic and high and lifted up, 
and glorious and great and has wonderful grandeur to him. That's holy reverence. That's this, that's this awesome God that the Bible talks about. And then the fear of the Lord is not just holy reverence, but also a healthy dread, a healthy dread of God, which means, of course, that He is judge, that He is perfect, that He will come against those who oppose Him. There ought to be even, not simply for unbelievers, but for even believers to see a healthy sense of of the dread of our God. Why? Because He's a consuming fire, because He's holy, because we're not. So, holy reverence and a healthy dread. Maybe that's going to help you. Maybe that will help you in terms of the definition of the fear of the Lord. I want to think of it as a holy reverence of God, that He is transcendent, and also a healthy dread of His power, of, of His vindication, of what He's going to do. And even in that holy reverence of God, it's not just transcendence, but also His nearness, His imminence. He, he comes near to His people. He protects them. We need such protection, right? So it's a holy reverence of God and a healthy dread of our God. And I think it would be good for us to understand that this idea of a holy reverence for God and a healthy dread of God is extremely prominent in our Bibles. Now, we don't have time to go through all of them. I once did a multi-series of messages simply on the fear of God, and I went through every single reference to the fear of God, the fear of the Lord in the entire Bible, just to show us in the context, what does it mean? And What is it saying, and what are the characteristics of it, and what are the various facets of the diamond of the fear of the Lord? And do you know that it's very, very prominent, not only here in the Psalms, but particularly in the Proverbs, but also in Job and Ecclesiastes? In other words, all the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's a prominent theme, the fear of the Lord. Let's uh, look at a couple of places I want to show you. Look at Proverbs chapter 1. Look at Proverbs chapter 1. So you have Psalms, and then after the Psalms, you have the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs. I can, as you're turning to Proverbs 1, I can say confidently that the overarching key of the entire book of Proverbs is found in this phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Because it says it there in Proverbs chapter 1. Notice what it says, Proverbs 1.1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, and then this key statement, maybe it's the capstone statement, certainly it is of this first part of Proverbs 1, but I say also all of the Proverbs entirely, and it is this, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then it's flip side, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the wise, we want knowledge. 
Well, what's the gateway to such knowledge? The fear of the Lord. Because notice it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the gateway. It's the platform. It's both the start and the end. And it's also the middle. It's the fear of the Lord. That means that holy reverence and that healthy dread. That's the beginning of of knowledge. Look at chapter 3, verse 7 of Proverbs. Chapter 3, verse 7. You know that very famous passage, verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Notice this. This is an evangelistic call. Be not wise in your own eyes. In other words, don't be a fool. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear the Lord. Reverence Him. Reverence Him. And have a healthy dread of Him. Not a preoccupied, I'm frightened, I'm scared, but a healthy dread. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a healthy dread of this God. He's awesome, and He loves you. And He's all about helping you. So fear Him. Look at chapter 9, verse 10. Fear of the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Boy, that's so good. The the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You say, where else might it be in the wisdom literature, the so-called wisdom literature of the Old Testament? How about Job? Turn back before the Psalms, and you get to Job. And when you're in Job, look at chapter 28. Chapter 28 of Job. Job is continuing to to speak, and he's asking, where is wisdom in chapter 28? And this is what he says in Job 28, 28. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. That's just like Proverbs 3, 7, isn't it? The fool turns away from wisdom. There, that means that he turns away from the fear of the Lord. But the wise person, he fears the Lord, which means he gets even more wisdom. That's Job 28, 28. And it's also in our Psalms. It's not just uh, here in Psalm 76. Look at Psalm 111. Psalm 111, verse 10. This is, this is yet another affirmation of the fear of the Lord. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You say, that sounds like a broken record. I mean, we just, we just keep hearing the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know why it's a broken record? Because we so easily forget. I mean, almost as soon as our eyes go off the words of the page of our Bible, we forget it. you leave tonight and you go out that door, please don't forget that. I'll be thinking of other things and I might too. Just forget it. Just go on my merry way. And yet it's repeated so often. No wonder because we so easily forget. You know why? Two things. We uh, forget because we forget. We just plain old forget. Or 
we don't remember it because it's so familiar. So it's either forgetfulness or familiarity. It's just, yeah, I've heard that a thousand times. Fear of the Lord's beginning of the wisdom. Fear of the Lord's beginning of the wisdom. Well, it's so familiar. Ho-hum. Okay. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And not just in Job and Psalms and Proverbs, but look at Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 12. You remember this, uh, this one, Solomon perhaps, or the, the wise old sage, and he sort of comes to his senses at the end of Ecclesiastes, and here's what he says almost in the last little bit, verse 13, end of it all, the end of the matter. In other words, this is the conclusion. This is the crescendo. This is the end of it all. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty? You mean to tell me that you could, you could ratchet down the whole duty of man into a phrase? Yeah. And you know what that phrase is? Fear God. Fear God. Reverence Him and dread Him. Oh, dread Him? I don't want to do that. Well, if you knew all of his character and all of his attributes and all of his great name, and you're standing in his presence, you would dread him. And he would touch you on your head and say, if you're in Christ, I love you. I love you, and I'll take care of you. And then you reverence him all the more. That's, that's what this is. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Why? Last sentence of Ecclesiastes. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now that's a healthy dread. That's a holy reverence. That's why this is so important. I'll say it this way, your relationship with and to God through this concept of fear, holy reverence and healthy dread, forms the very basis of how you relate to God himself and how he relates to you and how everything relates to itself and how everything and everyone else is related, either good or evil. So, no wonder there's a psalm that accentuates the fear of God. No wonder. Because it's so prominent. Look back at Psalm 76. We're going to go through it quickly. And it's amazing, Psalm 76. It's four couplets of three verses apiece. Four couplets of three verses apiece. Twelve verses, so that means first couplet, Verses 1, 2, and 3. Second couplet, 4, 5, and 6. Next couplet, 7, 8, and 9. Last couplet, 10, 11, and 12. Now, why would they do that? For memory's sake. Because it would be memorable. Four couplets, three verses. It's a, it's a unit. First unit, second unit, third unit, fourth unit. Memorize this. Sing this. 
Make it your life song. This is what's going on here. And I've given us three key words to help us even more. And here's the first of those four. Here it is. God's fear is shown in His greatness. You say, what is Psalm 76 teaching me about God's fear? If that's the prominent repeated phrase in this psalm, then then what aspect in the first three verses are we talking about when we're talking about God's fear? And here it is, the fear of God in His greatness. His greatness. Now, what kind of greatness? His greatness is Israel's warrior king. That's His greatness, as Israel's warrior king. Why is it talking about war, and why is it talking about God as a divine warrior, and He's Israel's warrior king. Why? Because it's in this section of book three of the Psalms, and it's talking about devastation. It's talking about warring peoples coming against Israel. So this is a song about us needing our God to come as our cavalry. We're, we're, we're without the rest of our help. Our, our army's been besieged. We can't do what we must do to take this army out from invading us. So what do you do? You call on your God. That's what you do. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. In Judah, God is known. In Judah, you know, that southern kingdom. In in Judah, God is known. How is He known? His name is great in Israel. Great. Here's greatness. Do you see that? His name is great. His name, all of his attributes, all of his character, it's all bound up in the name. The name, what is the name? The name God, the name Yahweh. Where does he live? Notice what it says. His abode has been established in Salem. Guess what that is? Jerusalem. Salem. That's the holy city. His dwelling place is Zion. That's the holy temple in the holy city. And what has he done? Is he just great? Does he just walk around with pomp and circumstance? Does he have the robe? And does he have the scepter? And does he want people just to give him great adulation, but he doesn't do anything? Now, look, I don't want to disparage the United Kingdom, and I don't want to disparage their queen. But honestly, what does she do? What does she do? It just appears to me as though she just walks around, and she just takes out the hand and just blesses people and she goes back and has dinner and goes to bed. I mean, it's the prime minister and it's, it's the governmental political bodies that are, that are doing things. She's a, she's a placeholder. Now, there's majesty and there's glory and, and oh, God save the queen. And yes, of course, yes. But she doesn't hold a candle to this God. There, he broke the flashing arrows the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah. That means musical interlude. Take a pause and just think about that. Israel's defeated. They need their God. They need Judah's God. His name is great. And he's to be feared. How is he to be feared? By his greatness. It says that. His name is great. He's in charge, he's in control. He's the divine warrior. He's Israel's warrior king. And so I have a holy reverence and a healthy dread because God is great in His defense of His people. Boy, if I had an army, 
you know, and I hear us, I hear us even in the United States of America say, we have the greatest army known on the planet. Well, that's debatable. But even if that were true, what would happen if even more armies than just our one army came against our one army and they came with 10 countries of armies? How would we do? What would we think? And if we were vanquished, what would we think about our army after that? Well, Israel has armies all the time coming against them. So who do you call? If you say, we're the greatest army in the world, we've got the greatest military might, greatest air force, navy, marines, army. Well, one day, no matter what, you're going to be outnumbered. And you need the divine warrior, the divine warrior king. This is who they're celebrating. And God, through our fear of him, will vanquish all our foes. Our God is to be feared. He's to be revered and dreaded because he's the ultimate vanquisher of all the enemies of righteousness and good. If you ever want to see an answer to Yahweh's theodicy, his fairness and his justice, his greatness and his vindication, look no further than Psalm 75, 2 through 8, and Psalm 76. Just look at it. Just read it. Read it yourself. God's fear is shown in his sheer greatness. His name is great. And that's just not hyperbole. It's true. And it will show, it will be shown to be true. And I know. There they are. Where's the promise of his coming? All things remain as they were. Well, that's why we call it faith. We wait. And we have faith that our warrior king will come because of his greatness. Number two. Number two. Verses 4, 5, and 6. God's fear is shown in His gloriousness. His gloriousness. First, His greatness in verses 1, 2, and 3. But now His gloriousness as Israel's defender. It's not like just a God who seemingly gives a good message but can't deliver. This is, this is a God who actually is robed in righteousness and he's got the scepter of his kingdom and he does something about it. And here's what he does. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Glorious are you. Do you see that word? Glorious there, verse 4. Greatness. And verse 1, greatness. Greatness and gloriousness. Those are two attributes of God's fear. God's fear. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey. What does that mean? Well, this could also be translated as mountain lions. Mountain lions. You see them, and if they're in a pack, and if they're going after their game, their prey, they look pretty ferocious. You, you and I wouldn't want to tangle with them. And notice what it says. More majestic than the mountain lions of prey. More majestic. In other words, the Lord sees out from his heavens and he sees some uh, invading, mongering army who wants to destroy Israel forever. And what does he do? He sits in the heavens and he laughs. He laughs. And notice what else it says. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. (laughs) 
Stout-hearted. Can, can you see can you see the people of this earth, how they, they tout their stout heart? They just tout, they, they, think, they think they're so mighty. And when they come against our God, he strips them of their spoil. And then it says, they sank into sleep. In other words, they can't do a thing. It's as though they're sleeping. It's as though they can't even get up. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. Isn't that amazing? It's as though hands, of course, are used for battle. The sword. We might say today the computer technology of what you use with your hands to send the missiles. And they can't even use their hands. Their hands are tied. Can't use them. Can't fight without your hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Now, I know people say, yeah, well, that's just what you're reading in this ancient, irrelevant book. It's not going to really be that way. I mean, you think there's going to be this sort of a supposed divine being who's sitting up in the heavens laughing at all the stout-hearted warriors and that he's actually going to do something? Where is the promise of his coming? Well, he is great. And he is glorious as the defender of Israel. More majestic than any sight of a pack of lions who roam the mountains preying upon their victims, all the world of strong men and whole armies who think they're stout-hearted and yet to God himself they're nothing more than sleepy, defenseless warriors who find out they can't even use their hands in battle. They're impotent before our glorious God. They are a mere plaything in the hand of the Lord who defeat them so convincingly both rider and horse lay un able to do anything. They're stunned, defeated without a response. And it's all because Israel's enemies don't fear Israel's God. He's a glorious God and He's gloriously to be feared. This is the whole point of Psalm 76. Uses uses fear four times. And it's the fear, the reverence of this great and glorious God. Look at number three. The third couplet, verses seven, eight, and nine. You say, what's happening here? This is judgment, friends. This is God's fear is shown in his gavel of judgment. Greatness, gloriousness, and now his gavel. His gavel of judgment. And this is this is a, a widening out of all things now. Because I've been saying during the entirety of this message, God's going to come and He's going to vindicate His people and He's going to defend His people and He's going to destroy others who come against His people. And that people, of course, according to Psalm 76 and according to our Old Testament Scripture, are the people of Israel, right? It says it. But do you know that there's also in the plan of God not just the plan for God's holy people Israel, but also for Gentiles? 
for the nations. They're going to be included in God's redemptive plan. And notice how this song is to be sung even in Israel. Notice it. Verse 7. It says, but you, speaking of our God, you are to be feared. And that's where it first lands in our text, feared. You're to be reverenced. We're to be in awe of you. Uh, We dread your, your mightiness and your power. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you? And the answer is no one. No one. No one can stand before you when once your anger is roused. In other words, at that right time, at that appointed time, he, he, he removes himself from the bench and he stands up and he takes his gavel and he pounds the celestial bench of the heavens and he says this, it is time. It is time. Yes, that's the one we ought to fear. Because now his anger is roused. That's it. The time has come. And what does the Scripture say? From the heavens you uttered judgment. That's the time. It's the time now of judgment. It's the time of recompense. The earth feared. There's the second word. The earth feared and was what? Still. I mean, what, whatever happened to the naysayers? Whatever happened to the people, where is the promise of His coming? Well, He's here. He's come. And they do what you and I would do. You stand still and you cower in the presence of a great, glorious, gaveling judge. That's what you do. You are standing still, saying nothing, and hoping that He doesn't notice you. When God arose to establish judgment, and notice this, to save all the humble of the earth. Yeah, He comes in judgment against the wicked, but He also delivers the humble. Not not those, according to Psalm 75, who lift up their horn, uh, those who speak with a haughty neck, not those but the ones who bow low, the ones who are humble. And notice the two references there, one in verse 8, the earth. Verse 9, the humble of the earth. Selah. Ponder. Musical interlude. Think about this. Ponder it. This This is God judging the entire world. And He puts down the high and mighty, and he raises up the lowly. And he saves all the humble. He delivers them. He delivers them. This This is our word for salvation. This is our word for spiritual salvation. He delivers. He saves. I mean, these these three verses, they go far beyond just Israel and her people. This is a declaration over 
all the earth. God brings his divine gavel down suddenly and fiercely onto the celestial bench and the time has finally arrived to right all wrongs and to righteously defend and savingly deliver all the humble of the earth. Oh, I hope that's you and me. I hope that's you and me. I don't want to I don't want to stand at attention, absolutely stick still and receive his judgment. I don't want that. I want to be one of those that is laying low and he lifts me up with his salvation hand. That's what I want. Is that what you want? I mean, you don't, you don't want, and neither do I, the gavel of his divine justice vindicating himself and judging me forever. And who, and who who is this God? Well, you say he's Yahweh. And I tell you, yes, it is Yahweh. But it's Yahweh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. It is Yahweh. Yes, it is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. After this I heard. Now think of the judgment to come now. Where's the promise of His coming? Here it is. It's come. Revelation 19, 1. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Do you see the fear of God there? Right? The fear of God. This is that holy reverence. This is that healthy dread. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. There's theodicy for you. What are His judgments? They're true and just. He's vindicated. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who what? Fear him. You who fear him. Do you see that? Small and great. And who is it? Well, hallelujah. According to verse 6, For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Yeah, those are the ones that the Lord's lifting up. The humble. And according to verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Do you see that, the divine warrior in Psalm 76? He's being identified right here. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Does that remind you of John 1.1? And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the divine warrior. That's our God. And it all stems from his being feared throughout the whole earth. The earth feared and was still. This is the gavel of judgment. And fourthly and last, his grandeur. His grandeur. His greatness. His gloriousness. His gavel of judgment. And now God's fear is shown in his grandeur as the king of all kings. I just read it, didn't I? Revelation 19. King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, this is Yahweh. This is our God. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12 of Psalm 76. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. You say, wait a minute, is that a misprint? Surely the wrath of man shall praise you? How does, how does man's wrath praise God? It is so because he vanquishes all of those who would bring wrath against him. And when he vanquishes them, when he triumphs over them, even in triumph over the wicked, God is praised. You say, that's not a God that I want to serve. Praising God because he's, he's wiped out a whole people group because they didn't want to follow him? Now, that doesn't seem kind. Well, if you were a nation that just wanted to be on your merry way and uh, do all that you wanted to do and tranquility and quietness and then a country came against you and your God needed to defend you and he wiped them out for you, you would praise him for it. You'd praise him for it. He delivered you. He saved you. So surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt, the belt of victory, the belt, the belt of triumph. And what's the first thing you ought to do once you realized that God had defended you to the utmost? What do you do? You go into the house of God and you praise Him, right? You offer gifts to Him. And that's what it says. Make your vows to the Lord. Make your vows to Yahweh, your God, and perform them. Of course I will. He just delivered me from certain death. Of course I will. Let all around Him bring gifts to Him. To God, to the Lord, to Yahweh, to Jesus Christ, who is to be feared. You see how the fearing of God plays into Psalm 76? All the way to the time where he vanquishes all his foes. He protects you and me. And I bring gifts to him because he is to be feared. Why? Because he cuts off the spirit of princes All those who are against us, this God is to be feared by the kings of the earth. All the kings will have to, by by the triumph of the greater king, they'll have to bow in reverence to him. Oh, they won't like it, but they'll have to do it. They'll have to do it. And then he, and then he, parades them through the city as the vanquished foes and he is lauded because he's protected his people. And you know what that sounds like? I mean, this is Psalm 76, but that's exactly what is said in the gateway of the Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, and particularly Psalm 2. It probably was at one time 
one psalm, Psalms 1 and 2. And here's what it says in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. God laughs at them. They can't do anything. The Lord holds them in derision. I'm going to deal with you. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 76 right there, first verse? Zion, Salem, Jerusalem. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's talking about God the Father giving God the Son the nations as his own possession. We know that by New Testament revelation. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's exactly what we read in Revelation 19. See how it all fits together? Now, therefore, O kings, be wise... In other words, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Fear, there it is again. And rejoice with trembling. There's that healthy dread. Fear the Lord with a healthy trembling and rejoice. Isn't that interesting? Rejoice with trembling. If I tremble, I'm not often rejoicing. But here I'm rejoicing with trembling Kiss the Son. Pay homage to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed are all. He's going to save all the lowly of the earth. And when He does, we're going to kiss His feet. We're going to bow down before Him. And you say, is, is that the Lord Jesus? Is Is that the Son of God? Yes, because Philippians 2 says it just like this as we close. Philippians chapter 2. This is what's going to happen. When Jesus Christ, through His humility, came to this earth, who though He was in the form of God, Philippians 2.6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He went low, taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what happens when he has done that cross work? Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our King. This is the King of kings. This is the Word of God. This is the faithful and true. This is, this is our God. And if that's our God, we are to, to fear Him. We're to have a holy reverence. We're to have a a right, healthy dread of Him. 
And it right, goes, goes right back to the fear of the Lord. It just goes right back to the fear of the Lord. That's why Proverbs 2 says this in verse 4, If you seek understanding like it's silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Is this your pursuit? Bruce Waltke, a wonderful commentator on the Proverbs, says this, My own research and reflection on Proverbs, and I think you and I could add to Dr. Waltke's studies of the Proverbs, now the study of the Psalms also. This research and reflection on the Proverbs has led me to the realization of a threefold connection, namely, Character, listen to this, character affects conduct and conduct in turn affects consequences. I'll read that again. Character affects conduct and conduct in turn affects consequences. He goes on to say, one may refer to it as the three C's of wisdom. The three C's of wisdom. Yes. Are you living in such a way that your character is being forged by the fear of the Lord, which then in turn is affecting your conduct, which then produces good consequences? Or do you despise wisdom and instruction, which in turn produces foolish conduct and then terrible temporal and ultimately eternal consequences? This is, this is the fear of the Lord. Heavenly Father, this fear of you, this holy reverence, and this healthy dread of your awesomeness is for us the beginning of wisdom. But for fools, they despise such wisdom. All we have to do is go onto the city street and talk to someone and, and ask them, do you want wisdom? Well, of course I do. Do you want understanding? Yes. Yes, I want understanding. Well, then you must fear the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you talking about? That's, that's all of that religious mumbo-jumbo. No, I'm going to pursue wisdom my way. I'm going to get understanding in the way I think it should be gained. And that's a fool. Fools despise wisdom and knowledge. The wisdom and knowledge that comes only from the creator of our world and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Jesus, might we fear you with holy reverence and healthy dread because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are great and you are glorious. And when you come according to Revelation 19 and when you are spoken of in Psalm 76 as the ultimate warrior king, 
just as Revelation 19 says, then your, your own gavel of justice, of judgment, will, will come down on the celestial bench and you'll come to this earth and you'll wage war with all of those who don't fear you. And we will see your grandeur. So Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we adore you, we worship you, we bring our gifts to you, we perform our vows to you, our vows of obedience and love. And We ask that you would protect us from the wrath to come. And if we're in Jesus Christ, the Lord, we shall be delivered from such wrath to come. May it be so. And may you give us a glorious eternity in which to worship the greatness and gloriousness and the gavel of judgment upon the wicked and the salvation of the humble and your grandeur forever and ever. We say amen. Amen.